This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm excited for this episode. We've got an expert on here uh, who we, I guess, have followed for a while, we've known of for a while, and um, we're really excited to delve into it on the show. That's it. It's our pleasure to welcome Joe Mega to the studio. Joe, welcome. Gentlemen, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Just a reminder that before we uh, get cracking, we're not experts. We're not financial professionals. We're not licensed. We're just here learning like you and nothing on this podcast should be taken as advice. But Joe is a private investor with over 17 years professional experience across funds management, equity research and investing and investment banking. Joe co-founded Lakehouse Capital and until recently was Lakehouse's chief investment officer and has managed to um, consistently outperform, which we're going to delve into in a moment. But Ren, let's kick off. Yeah, Joe, before we get to that, we love to start by hearing about uh, an investor's first investment. The story or the lessons that came out of it are normally quite valuable. So to kick us off today, what was your first investment? Sure. Sure, it was around 20 years ago. So I was about 20. I was a sophomore at University of Georgia, go dogs. <laughs> and I made my first investment, which was in Amazon. You know, this was would have been around 2002. Shares were probably 90% off from their highs. Dot-com bubble fully burst. I love the product um, or the business. To me, it was amazing that I could have such a great selection, good prices and stuff sent right to my door. All very novel at the time. Business, negative working capital, funding it. You had Jeff Bezos, who owned a lot of it, a lot of skin in the game. So it was a lot to really like. I paid about $1 in split-adjusted terms. So today it's you know north of $120. i would love to tell you that I still own oh, those shares, <laughs> but I don't. Here's the, here's the sophomore college uh, story. So all that sounds great. You're like, oh, oh yeah, nailed it. Unfortunately, I sold it about a month later. Oh, I just no. completely panic sold because the stock had fallen by like a third. And I was like, I, I'm afraid I might lose more money. I need to sell. 
And that was my first investment. Now, later, I did end up coming back to Amazon, and I'm a longtime holder. Damn. <laughs> that hurts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had to be a pretty confident university student to think this stock is down 90%, the tech bubble has burst, but I, this is going to be my first investment. Well, I suppose so. I think there's some virtue in being a little naive too, you know, and, um, you know, I, I, I kid, but if you go back to the COVID crash, you know, some of the investors who did best there were ones who ironically didn't have tons of experience. Mm. You know, they weren't people who'd been in markets for 50 years. They were like, stocks are down huge in a short amount of time, fastest crash ever. Maybe I should buy something. And sometimes it, it can be as simple as that. Now, Joe, from the University of Georgia, you made your way to Australia. Uh, you were working at the Motley Fool and you co-founded Lakehouse Capital, which is Motley Fool's, I guess, asset management arm here in Australia. Can you tell us about that journey, how you made made it to Australia and um, what you learned along the way? Sure. So I've been at the Fool at HQ in Alexandria, Virginia, outside DC for about six years. And they were looking for an experienced investor to come down, join the team, which at the time was, you know, a handful of guys around the kitchen table. I think Scott, Scott Phillips was the only full-time investor at the time and work with Scott and help build a team and, you know, be here for a couple of years. And I just got married and I sorely wanted to get some international experience as an investor. And so I just thought it was an awesome opportunity to live in a country I'd always wanted to visit. Um, work with Scott, who I'd met at the Berkshire meeting the year before and loved, really hit it off with him. And just being a really entrepreneurial environment. And it was like, wow, it sounds like a great opportunity. So we came down and dot, 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 <laughs> stayed for nine years, had two kids, starting a funds business. Um, so it was, yeah, it was pretty full on. Um, the I guess the dot, dot, dots, so initially focused on small caps in Australia which was so much fun for me because I had no background with Aussie Smalls. So to me, it was just super invigorating and refreshing to be like, okay, what are all these companies? And just diving into this whole new universe. Um, Long story short, over three, four years, kind of developed a following doing that. And then we had people who said, hey, would you like to just do this for us? And that was kind of the impetus with Lake House. And uh, Donnie Buchanan and I set that up within full Australia. Um, it's probably five, six years ago now. And by the time I left, we were running a little over 900 million uh, between the two funds. It was, it was a ride. Uh, amazing life experience and investing experience. So from the point of your sophomore investment in Amazon to that point of almost managing uh, a billion dollars, how, how would you describe the investment philosophy that you developed and that you probably still have today? Well, fortunately, I kicked off the um, panic selling thing early <laughs> and with my own capital, small amounts of it. You know, I suspect most pros have a similar story. They just, I don't know if they're willing to admit it, but, um, you know, philosophically, I think really high level, I guess, a couple things to know. One, I'm entirely fundamentally driven as an investor. There's no technical analysis with, with my process at all. Um past that super qualitatively driven. So, you know, yes, I do number crunching and I have a classic finance background. It's actually unusual for people with Molly Fool, um, but, you know, hardcore classic, classical training. Uh, but that said, someone who spends a huge amount of time trying to understand the, the finer points of the business in, in a conceptual way. So understanding you know, the economic model, 
the ecosystem reinvestment potential management's alignment, uh, their incentives, their motivations, and the ability for a company to to reinvest in itself. And you know, hopefully, you're looking at a business kinds of businesses that interest me. Have you know might have a network effect, might have very loyal customers, unique IP, and if they have those and, and all those other ingredients in a market that that is attractive they might be able to take the profits to generate reinvest a lot of it get really good returns on that for many years to come and that's kind of my sweet spot is finding those kinds of companies in practice there are not many of them Hmm. so in addition to being very long-term oriented i tend to also be pretty high conviction uh, because of the you know combination of these things where i don't have a lot of companies to meet my criteria so when i do find them i tend to buy them, latch on and hang on for a very long time. And, you know, I'm also someone who this gets back to my kind of classical training that I I read a lot of investing studies and white papers. I'm a hardcore investing nerd. And, you know, I think when people talk about long-term investing, they, they oftentimes don't really understand some of the, um, the support around it. But if you look at almost any study, you'll see consistently across markets and time investors who trade less, and have longer average holding periods have better returns than ones who trade frequently. Mm. And yes, there are exceptions to the rule, but on average, you know, that's, that's a very clear um, result in, in all the studies you'll look at. And, you know, another thing, you know, in terms of being empirically driven, it's always been intuitive to me to be a high conviction investor. It just suits my personality to put you know, my capital behind a smaller number of my best ideas but there are so many studies that show that, you know, high conviction investors tend to outperform those with lower conviction. And that comes in a lot of different ways. And I'll qualify this by saying, I do think diversification is generally very important. So I hope nobody out there rushes off and puts all their money behind some <laughs> specky minor. Um, that's not what I'm saying. It's more like in a professional context. So professional context, high conviction would be like 20 holdings. You would say that's a high conviction fund. So just to give you some examples of what I'm talking about, um, there's one study I came across that showed the average or the largest holding in fundamentally driven funds on average was the biggest contributor to their performance. The second biggest holding was the second biggest and right on down. And what that showed was actually active managers are good at picking stocks (laughs) on average. But why do they, I think a good question is, why did they then underperform, you know, if they're, they're actually good at it? One is fees, but the other is, I think it's product design where they just own too many stocks. Mm. So once you get past kind of stock number 30, the average pro starts to lose money from the new positions they add. And it makes sense, you know, because frankly, I personally only have so many good ideas, but you can also stay on top of only so many companies. So yeah. anyway, th- those are things that are near and dear to me is, is how I think about investing. I, I kind of glossed over one other thing, which is that I'm very much a growth investor. You know, I think of investing as a continuum and it's all about ranges of outcomes. Uh, but if you style box me, <laughs> style box is growth pretty hard. Yeah. So it's probably the last on that portfolio construction point, uh, I feel like a lot of people get caught up in like the the Peter Lynch. Uh, you know, I think he at the end he had hundreds, if not thousand, uh, thousand uh, stocks in his portfolio. 
when you not for professional uh, investors because I don't think there's a too many of them listening to us. But for retail investors, you know, when you're at the Motley Fool, you probably be surprised. To be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, for retail investors who. Uh, you know, are thinking about how they should construct their portfolio. Do you have any rules of thumb for the right number of positions or, you know, the the structure of a, a retail investor's personal portfolio? Well, to, to go back to research, there are different studies on this. Uh, one, one that's pretty popular is once you get to a portfolio of about 15 different positions that are randomly distributed in English, a diverse set of 15 different companies. So not just 15 different SaaS companies or 15 gold miners, but a range of companies across you know market caps, sectors. Once you get to that level, you've eliminated about 90% of volatility that's attributable to individual stocks. So really you can buy more, but you're really you're not going to do much to reduce your volatility from that point forward. So you know, on the one hand, I'd say as you kind of get to that level, it's good. You're going to lot of diversification. But if you double the number from 15 to 30, you're not even going to cut the incremental difference in volatility by half. I think a lot of investors, ironically, yeah, over-diversify. Yeah. Part of that's just people covering their butts in the industry um, because mm. it's, it's safe. You know, you want clients as many holdings as possible. You know, it covers your butt yeah. as an advisor or fund manager. Uh, but in practice, you know, 15 diversified holdings at the portfolio level reduces the super majority of your volatility. Mm. Yeah. Now, uh, Joe, we want to turn to Lakehouse. And I think uh, I just want to contextualize your time at Lakehouse with a couple of numbers because Bryce mentioned that you outperformed uh, your benchmark, but uh, we have the numbers here and they're pretty impressive. So uh, Lakehouse was, and correct me if these numbers are wrong, please. But Lakehouse was started in 2016 and in the small companies fund, the benchmark returned 11.9% a year. Your fund returned 24% a year net of fees. And then in the Global Growth Fund, uh, the benchmark returned 12.7% a year and your fund returned 24.9% net of fees. So you didn't just beat the benchmark, you smoked the benchmark. And we'd love to unpack, uh, I guess, your investing process and, and how you did it and really learn from your experience. So if we start at the beginning of your process, how do you even approach the discovery process? There's 2,000 listed stocks in Australia. There's 40,000 or something around the world. Where do you start? So your process needs to be a continuation of your philosophy and your goals. So, you know, for me, the goal was always long-term outperformance. And so working backwards from that, how do we build a portfolio that's going to outperform over the long-term? You know, I think we do it by owning a high conviction basket of companies that have strong competitive advantages, um, good balance sheets, really good management teams with a lot of alignment, and can those businesses can reinvest in themselves and grow at high rates for a long time without having to put too much capital back in the business to drive that growth and, and value. Um, so how do you find those? And I would say sometimes companies like that can be straightforward and easy to find. So I've owned Visa for more than a decade. And the whole time I've owned it, the thesis has looked more or less the same. It hasn't really changed. And it's screened incredibly well. You know, if you look on things like consistent revenue growth, you know, balance sheet being in good shape, you know, wicked margins, all those things. And yet it's done really well over the time with more or less the same thesis. But most 
great investment opportunities aren't so readily available off the shelf, in my opinion. Um, and typically that means you have to do a little more work. Um, so you can do simple screens, which are good jumping off points. But the thing with traditional screening is if you're just looking for, oh, I want a company growing at this rate with these margins and this balance sheet, hate to tell you, everybody's running the same <laughs> screens, you know? <laughs> So you're going to end up looking at the same stocks. And, you know, for that, I'd say as far as looking for ideas, I would be curious and I would read widely and I would try to look at ideas that fit what you're knowledgeable about. You know, you mentioned Peter Lynch earlier. I think his advice sometimes gets stretched a little far, but, you know, the spirit of his advice around not buy what you know, but let what you know inform your buying and research, right? I would very much run with that. You know, most people have professional experience that they can relate to, um, or they can just do a lot of research on their own and use that to help you get across ideas, uh, but turn over a lot of rocks and try and turn over rocks that um, are in a space that's relevant to your areas of interest. Um, Past that, you know, and to try to like, I won't get into like the full, like, professional grade version. But what I will say is that I think something pros and beginning investors alike can do well with is checklisting. So anytime we look at a new position, we do a checklist. I still do this. I run the same process personally, just with my own capital. I'm a big believer in this, but if anyone's ever read the checklist manifesto, know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I recommend it. Uh, But the spirit of it is using checklists is a great way to be consistent, methodical, and rigorous with your process. And so you think about what are the qualities you look for in a business that you like, ones you want to avoid. And each time you look at a new opportunity, just run through that checklist. It doesn't have to be 200 points. Um, You know, it could be a couple dozen, it could be five, but just something to like slow your roll a little bit, just to be like, all right, does this fit some of the things that I'm looking for? And from there, if it passes that, that's where we would go and do much deeper work and really dive in and be like, all right, what's the core of this business model? What's the landscape like? Who are the competitors? What kind of returns do we think this business can generate going forward, reinvesting itself? What markets could it go into? Are its competitive advantages getting stronger or weaker? Are there like adjacent products and services they could do? And you get much more on the qualitative side and then into the financials too and you know all the nerdy stuff and digging into valuations and, and risk and whatnot. Mm. You know, I think if I was an individual investor, I'd say what I'd hope people would come away from it is just trying to implement a little bit of a check in their process where they can be systematic. That isn't overkill, but something to help them you know, bring some rigor. I'm a big checklist kind of guy, so I'm going to give that book a read for sure. Nice. <laughs> so Joe, uh, once you, you know, you've, you've, decided that it's a great investment opportunity you've done you've identified it you've done your research and you're like yep i've got high conviction around this how do you then go about managing a portfolio of such a concentrated number of stocks do you let companies just run as far as they do do you trim positions do you sell the worst if another one is to come in can you talk us through how you would manage that i really dislike selling great companies Again, I don't find that many that I really love. And I generally find that when I sell on valuation, I tend to regret it later. You know, that said, there are points where my arm gets twisted every once in a while. And if a company's valuation just gets to levels I can't can't really tolerate anymore, we'll have to sell it. So, (laughs) 
you know, going back to 2021, there were some positions that we exited that we were just like, look, we can't, we can't justify continuing to hold this. We think it's an awesome business. And Twilio would be a prime example of that. So I don't really enjoy doing it, but I will say to kind of look at my, you know, personal holdings, um, I've owned Amazon for a decade, never sold a share. Visa for more than 10 years, never sold a share. Same with Alphabet. So, you know, hopefully that gives you a sense of it. There are times where I'll sell. Um, if my thesis is busted or I'm flatly wrong, uh, something else I'll say with selling is when I've looked at data on how good I am at selling, it's pretty mixed if I'm being really honest with you. And that's generally true with active managers. The research tends to show active managers are good at buying and not so good at selling. And when I did deep work on that at Lake House, what I found was I'd give myself like a B minus on selling because the positive part would be that on positions where we sold, the fund itself outperformed that position or the benchmark, I should say, from that point forward. So we we reallocated well is the spirit of what I'm saying. The problem is what we sold outperformed the benchmark itself. <laughs> so the stuff we sold did really well. So it's funny because I find selling is, is much more difficult than, than the buying part, which in a way, this kind of also gets back to the, I'm like, you know what? I'm good at the buying yeah. <laughs> and I'm good at the sitting. <laughs> so I think I'm going to try to focus on those as much as I can. My conclusion from that study is that you're really good at identifying stocks because the stocks that you sell keep going well and the stocks that you then buy do well. So it just sounds like the stocks that you identified do well. Well, I'll take that glass. (laughs) Just a quick one um, on that, Joe. So let's take Visa, for example, or Amazon, which you mentioned you've held both of for over a decade or so. And so the assumption there is that your thesis hasn't changed. You still think they're great businesses. How do you then go about buying into those companies over a decade? Are you just taking every opportunity where there's a dip to jump in or have you not bought as consistently over 10 years? It just happens that you got in at a great point and you're letting them run. Yeah, good question. I've averaged up into each of those over that time. 10 years is a long time. You know, Amazon on average, the last time I, I did this study was a couple of years ago, but from the IPO up to then, it sold at an average price like 27% it's all time, below its all-time high. So, you know, even though over that time it's gone, if you just skipped all the drawdowns, it's gone up into the right. But of course there are drawdowns. They happen all the time. And so there are windows where, you know, even great companies with long histories of value creation get kicked to the curve for all kinds of reasons. And, you know, with Amazon, it's usually the lender a new investment cycle. And everyone's like, no, (laughs) sell off. And everyone gets really concerned about margins. And then, you know, three years later, they come out and they're like, oh, this business can still generate a cash. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I tend to average up on those. But at the same time, with some of those positions, they've gotten kind of large for me. So just in terms of my portfolio mix, and it's been a while since I've bought any more Amazon. It's just too too chunky for me. Yeah, fair call. Yeah. Well, Joe, uh, we're going to take a quick break. Then when we come back, we want to talk about uh, what you're doing back in America now and uh, also some conversations around private markets. But before then, we'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Joe, before the break, we spoke about your time at Lake House Capital, how you smoked the benchmark and, um, you know, some of your uh, investing process to identify stocks. Uh, you, you started in America, you came to Australia and you've recently moved back to America. So, you know, we really want to understand, I guess, the similarities and the differences between the two markets um, and then get some advice for, you know, Bryce and I, Australians who often look to American stocks um, for investment opportunities. But let's start with the two markets. How are they similar? How are they different? Which one's better? <laughs> yeah, they have one common. Uh, you know, I think it helps Australian America cousins or at least half sibling, right? Have the same mother. Um, so... It's a lot of heritage. I'd say the regulatory framework's pretty similar. Reporting framework's similar. You know, I'd say each has their strengths. I'd say the U.S. market is it's larger, it's more liquid, it's more developed, and it's home to maybe not most, but many of the world's great growth companies that list are listed in the U.S. Atlassian, when they listed, they chose to list in the U.S., which I'm sure was I'm sure they took immense flack for, right? But they did that because that's the market that has the deepest appreciation uh, for high-growth technology companies. So if that's your bag, then it's a really attractive market to be looking. That said, there are plenty of great growth stories on the ASX. And something that is attractive about the ASX versus the U.S. market is it's frankly much less picked over. So you have a lot of really high quality companies um, where, you know, we would meet with management teams sometimes. Now, this, this is on the small end of town, but, you know, they would have occasionally almost no or sometimes zero analyst coverage from people working at brokerage houses, you know. And so you could find some really, really undiscovered opportunities, particularly in the smaller end of town here in Australia. You know, I mean, the. I say that. As I said here, I'm still going to take a while <laughs> to shake the, the market is very top heavy, but I would say I view that in a good way as someone who's trying to find mispriced growth companies because most of the people in the market, the pros, have training around mining, retail, and banking. As it happens, I don't really focus on any of those spaces because they're capital hungry and or cyclical. So that kind of left, you know. A couple thousand other companies to to choose from, and there are a lot of really attractive smaller growth companies in Australia, and they, you know, new ones come to the market consistently. And if you look at uh, returns for Australian small cap managers collectively, they're actually pretty good compared to most active managers globally, and I suspect that's why. You know, it's 
it's far away, like time zone wise. I mean, it's it's your 10 a.m. It's my 7 p.m. Right? Yep. You know, it's it's hard for people in the U.S. or Europe to to kind of swoop in and meet with Australian companies. So people in Australia kind of have you know first pick, first dibs, and usually are well ahead of picking the local winners. So you know, I, I think each market has its strengths, and I uh, just try to deploy to them and see what what int- you know, what aspect of the market suits you and what you want to do. If it wasn't retail banking or mining, what were the sectors or what are the sectors that still um, excite you or where you're finding uh, more of those opportunities? So with the caveat that I'm I'm sector agnostic and that I don't really care what industry a business is in or sector, it's more, do I think this business has a business model and competitive advantages that are going to allow it to generate great returns over time. So if I thought miners could do that, I would invest in them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that'd be fine. Um, and I, I know there are some investors who focus just on mining and some of them do very well. And there's some who just do banking. They do well. That's cool. I respect that. But if you're a super long-term oriented investor, you, know, you want to focus on industries where there's secular growth, the, the business models tend to be capital white that, when a business catches fire, it really gains, um, you know, it doesn't just spark, but it, it really burns. And, you know, where you find those kinds of businesses tends to be in IT. They're not all in IT, but they oftentimes of are. Um, and not always, but, you know, at, at Lake House, probably two thirds of the holdings we had, 70% of our time were in IT. I'd say a lot of the positions we had that weren't technically in IT were IT. So, you know, you could have like Prometicus, which was under healthcare, but, it, you know, it's a software company. Um, yeah. But, mm. you know, we're, um, we didn't spend too much time thinking about sector labels. I give you an example. We bought CoStar Group, um, which is kind of like the Bloomberg for commercial real estate in the U.S. And um, that was a position in the global fund. And, after we bought it, uh, Nick Thompson, who's now the manager of that fund, told me, yeah. So, by the way, that's an industrials. So, we finally own an industrial. And I'm like, oh, we do. How about that? It's funny because we've done, you know, so many hours of work and deep research on it. And I, you know, but paid no attention to the, the label. <laughs> Love that. Well, Joe, you, as we mentioned, you moved back to America and uh, I believe you're in Austin, Texas, and you're now uh, looking at private markets and in particular venture capital a little bit more. Uh, after a you know a decade of, or more of success in public markets, why the shift and what are you looking at in VC? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think when, when I stepped back from Lake House, you know, I, I love the team there. Basically, it's just kind of a fresh start for me with, okay, moving back to a new country again, and how do I want to spend the next 20, 30 years investing? And when I thought about what interested me most, and frankly, where I thought I could do really well, was taking my skills and moving earlier in the company's journey. So over the long arc of my career, I've gotten more growth focused and more focused on smaller companies. And, you know, I, I tend to think my strengths as an investor are wrapping my head around the conceptual level of a business, but also breaking down the, you know, the unit economics of the business itself and, and thinking about the opportunity. And if I feel like those are my strengths, then why not take that to the logical extreme and go, you know, as almost as early in the company's life cycle as possible. So 
that's where I've been focusing. I still do public markets. Um, I love public markets, but where I'm allocating new money is towards, you know, like call it angel stage, pre-seed stage investments, where these are companies that have just started getting traction. Uh, so they've got a product, you're starting to get revenue, but they might be less than a year old. My latest investment, I'm the first investor through the door with them. So these are, you know, small, young companies. There are intrinsic rewards to that, but I'd say on the, you know, more to the financial side, you know, the returns can be pretty compelling when you're right. Mm. And when you're wrong, you know, you, you get a donut. Uh, yeah. But that isn't really all that different for public markets mm. in that sense. And I think most investors would be surprised at how there, they're, I think there are a lot more similarities between the markets some people would appreciate. Mm. Are you able to shed light on any of the investments that you've made or that are exciting you at the moment or trends that you're trying to keep in touch with? Yeah, I think high level, what I'm, I probably keep a high level and they go down. So high level, what I'm trying to do in private is very similar to, to public. And I know there are a lot of people would say they're very different things. And to some extent, that's true. But at the same time, I think if you can understand product and markets well, then you know, you're, you're off to a good start. And so that's where I tend to focus um, as an angel. And I guess you know, to give a little more context around angel investing too, and, and part of the appeal for me is that you know, again, to get back to competition is, is an investing nerd. You're always, at least I am always trying to think about edge and where can I go to, to maximize my return and especially relative to my risk. And, you know, if you look at different studies on angel investing over time, you know, the average return across studies in the U S is something like 22% in the UK. I've seen studies more like 24. So the returns on that compared to, you know, 10% long-term public equities are pretty attractive. Now, granted we did you know, in the twenties, you know, at Lake House, um, net. So you could say, why not just stick with public? Um, but you know, maybe it's the competitive part of me and the optimist that's like, well, you know, if the average person doing this can pull down, you know, mid twenties returns, uh, well, see what I can do yeah. now, you know, that's the upside to it. What I'd say is different, you know, on the, there's the risk side, I guess in terms of competitiveness, you know, why is it, I think it's good to explain why are public market return, private market returns at early stage better than public. So one is risk. Something like 50% of angel investments are losses, and those losses are usually zeros. Um, so while, yes, the wins are bigger, you know, you have more losses. I will caveat, though, by saying that, you know, there's a study J.P. Morgan updates every while, every while um, where they look at concentration. And one thing they'll talk about is, in public markets in the U.S., something like 40% of investments end up falling by more than 70% from their all-time high, and they don't come back. So while you know early-stage investing in venture is riskier, it's not. I don't think the difference in risk is quite as large as a lot of people think, both in terms of odds and magnitude. But the magnitude on being right is much larger. Mm. So that you know that kind of speaks to me. But in terms of competitiveness, too, something else is, you know, you're investing in these companies, you're giving them money to, you're giving money to the company at their earliest stages. This is not your buying shares secondhand, you know, stock exchange. So liquidity is out the window. Mm. So you're invested with this company for, you know, it could be three, seven, 10, could be 15 years in extreme situations. So you're making a super long-term bet, which suits my interest in personality and style, but it doesn't suit everyone, doesn't suit everyone's liquidity profiles. 
And, you know, the last aspect to kind of get back to why it's interesting, but also why the returns are so good is um, not anyone can do it. So there are rules in Australia and the U.S. around who can invest in startups. And you have to be an accredited investor in the U.S. I'm blanking on what it's called in Australia. Sophisticated. Sophisticated. Which basically there are income thresholds and asset thresholds where they're trying to protect people from making very speculative investments. So to give you a sense of, you know, how narrow that universe is, um, in the U.S., there's something like 300,000 people who've made an angel investment in the past couple of years, and there are 145 million Americans who own a common stock. Mm. So it's great. There are a lot of people engaged in the share market, and they absolutely should be, but, you know, overall. Um, it's a great way to, to build wealth over time. Um, but for people who have the resources, risk tolerance, and willingness to spend the time, on the private side, you know, it can be pretty compelling. The investment analysis process is quite similar, whether a, mar- a company is publicly listed or privately listed. You know, you're looking at the unit economics of the business. Can they generate free cash flow? Can they reinvest that free cash flow into to growing that business? Uh, when when we think about the difference, I, I guess the, the way I think about it is like access via analysis. In public markets, you have access to everything and your edge comes from your analysis of these opportunities. Whereas in private markets, your edge often comes from access, getting access to the best deals, having the best deal flow, having the best relationships. For someone who has been in Australia for uh, a while, going back to uh, America and I guess having to build those relationships and, and find your way into these startup circles to get good deal flow, how have you found that? And for any budding angel investors out there, any advice for them? I think you need to just put yourself out there. And yeah, I mean, I definitely ironically have a bigger um, investor network in Australia. (laughs) But I think if you just put yourself out and let people know what it is you're interested in and you're proactive on finding opportunities, that's that's the best start. There are accelerators. Uh, If someone wanted to learn more about angel investing, I know Techstars, which which I do some mentoring with. Um, I believe they did a Techstars Melbourne uh, focused around sports. Might have been last year. Um, I want to say there's another in Sydney that might be coming up. There's stuff out there to help support that and facilitate angel investing. One thing I will say about angel investing is you do need to turn over a lot of rocks. And this is part of the reason that, frankly, not a lot of people get into it. Because the average angel looks at something like 40 deals for every one they invest in. And if you think of it as, well, look, you want to spread your bets pretty widely because you know there's a very wide range of outcomes within the space. If you want to invest in 10 companies, multiply that by 40, yeah. and you think about, well, how much free time do I have? Yeah. <laughs> you, know, I, I, you know, I'm doing this full time, so you know I'm dedicating myself to it, and I have the, the luxury of being able to do so. But you know, it's a good reminder of that's, that's part of the reason that the excess returns are there is just because of the you know kind of various entry. And on deal flow, again, I think a lot of it is just put yourself out there. And just be proactive on trying to meet founders and let them know what it is that you're interested in and how you want to support them. One thing I'd say on comparing public and private, I think a lot of the work and the research is similar. You know, the big differences would be, you know, on the private side, you're thinking a lot more about runway. You know, when you're investing in public companies, it's pretty rare that we would ever have a conversation about the risk of them running out of cash. Um, in private markets, that's a pretty early pretty early question is, mm-hmm. you know, what's your runway? What's your burn rate? 
Yeah, you know, understanding who the other investors might be so that if there does need to be more capital coming in, where does that funding come from? Well, Joe, we are we are, are almost running out of time and we do like to end with the same final three questions. So uh, we'll quickly move to them. Uh, the first one is, do you have any books that you consider must read? Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of, uh, I'll tell you about a book that I haven't heard many people talk about. It's called The Art of Profitability. It's by Adrian Slawatsky. You find it on Amazon, and I think it's a great book. And what he does in the book is he breaks down 23 different business models, you know, profit models or economic models, however you want to put it, but 23 different frameworks that companies use to generate money. And as someone who really is just a, a student of, of business and really just enjoys reading about this kind of thing, I think it's a great way for someone who's trying to build fundamental chops as an investor to read about a lot of different ways that know business models of ways companies can make money so i think that one's um that's pretty pretty underrated yeah that's great i've never actually heard of that book so i'll be jumping on amazon after this and picking that one up cool uh joe the second question forget valuation forget investing in it just purely on you know the fundamentals of the company what it does who runs it What's the best company you've ever come across? Well, I'd, I'd probably go back to Amazon. Um, so it's a business I've, you know, touch and go with for 20 years now. But over that time, it's consistently been super long-term oriented, super customer focused, very focused on delivering value for its customers. Um, you know, it's something I've learned as an investor. Uh, it's something I always focus on, you know, even in particularly at angel stages, how much value you're delivering for your customers? Is that a focus? Um, and if you're more focused on delivering value for them with still having, you know, attractive economics on your own, you know, I think over the long term that can treat you really well. And, you know, it's a business that's just executed at a very high level for a long time, uh, managed to build a lot of loyalty and extend that. So, mm, yeah. yeah, probably Amazon. And then final question, Joe, if you think back to your younger self buying Amazon and then selling it a month later, what advice would you give to your younger self? <laughs> um, calm down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Don't sell. Um, you know, again, kind of getting back to checklisting, I think if I just had something where I'd written down, why did I buy this? Um, and just taken even just a few minutes to write that down, it probably would have been helpful when the stock fell over the next month, I could have looked back to that and said, okay, I bought this for good reasons. Maybe I don't need to be so emotional. And that's part of the reason I'm big on checklisting and just writing down investment pieces in general. Yeah, I think it's something that I learned, um, well, have still trying to develop as well, but just writing down if it's 50 words or 500 or whatever it is, I think um, just having that there for moments like we're experiencing now where portfolios are down remind yourself why you bought into them great piece of advice to finish on joe so thank you very much for your time we certainly appreciate it i know that the audience would have taken a fair bit of um action out of that so we appreciate it and uh, all the best for the for the private market stuff looking forward to seeing your name in lights if you become uh the next andreessen or whoever it may be <laughs> thank you very much well, thanks guys really appreciate coming on uh, it's really fun talking to you thanks joe Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. 
Equity Meets Media does not operate under an Australian financial services licence and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website, where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.